Uh, here at Chapel Street, we talk a lot about growing in our faith and about making an impact. And this is an opportunity to do both of those things. To make an impact in the life of a child in Ecuador, someone in need, and also to grow in your faith. So again, this is a little bit of a different thing that we do typically. This isn't a, a one-time financial commitment, but something that is an ongoing thing. An ongoing financial commitment of $38 a month, but also to pray for that child, to write to them, to encourage them, to give them hope, as you just heard. There are, uh, there are uh, kiosks out in the lobby where you can go after the service. We'll have opportunities for you to sign up even today and over the next two weeks as well. Uh, one thing with that, there will be packets where you can uh, look at different kids and a little bit about them, and, and there's a card where you can fill out your information, and we've been instructed just to ask for you to not take one of those packets unless you filled out one of those cards, because if you take one with them, they'll assume that that child is sponsored, and there's only one sponsor per, per child. And so you're going to be hearing more about this in the coming days, but we're just so excited for what God is going to do. Let's pray as we open up his word together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much uh, for the gift of worship, for the gift of your church. Father, as we consider what it looks like to uh, partner with different ministries and to care for those even all around the world, God, would you just show us uh, what our place is in that? God, give us clarity and wisdom. God, give us boldness to, st to stand out and to step out in faith. Father, as we open your word, would you just speak to us now? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, some of you know this. Uh, my wife, Judy, and I recently have become parents. Uh, our son, Luca, was born a few months ago. Um, and I remember back when she was pregnant, having a conversation with her about just how we were going to do everything. Who's going to do what? Who's going to do all the feedings and changings and getting up in the middle of the night? Um, and I remember telling her that I wanted to do my part. I want to do just as much as she did. Um, I remember telling her, you know, we're, we're in this together. It's 50-50. I'm not going to be like some of those dads that let mom do, do all the work, um, that she can count on me. Don't laugh already. Um, recently, there have been some times, though, where, where our son has been waking up in the middle of the night, and he doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't need to be changed. All he wants is comfort. He just wants to be held. And there was one night in particular, I remember this recently, where, where this happened. It was like four in the morning. I was exhausted, but it was my turn. And so Judy turns over and she asks if I can do it. And, and so I say yes, and I start trying to, to get up. And the next thing I knew, I looked over and she's holding him, giving me the death stare. <laughs> you ever, can you ever like sense rage? That's how I felt that night. Um, and so I asked her what happened. And she said, well, you fell asleep and you wouldn't wake up, so I had to do it. I was reminded by something we saw Jesus say last week, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Today we have uh, just a few weeks left in our, our series in the book of Mark as we approach Easter Sunday. We've been looking at Jesus' life, at his ministry, all the things that he did, and we've been asking this question, what does it mean to follow the king? What does it mean to be part of this kingdom that he has come to Establish. And at this point in our story, we are in some of the final hours of Jesus' life. In fact, if you remember last week, we looked at this moment where Jesus took his disciples and he went to Gethsemane and he prayed. He anguished. He felt the weight of the sin that he was about to bear and become. We saw him pray this beautiful and dangerous prayer. Maybe you remembered it. He, say, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This prayer that strengthened him to carry out his purpose, a prayer of surrender and trust. 
We left things off last week with these words from Jesus to his disciples. He said, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Many of us, if you're familiar with the story, you know what happens next. You know that Judas, one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, identifies and betrays him. That Jesus is arrested and led to the high priest to be put on trial. And in that trial, he declares that he is the Christ, the Messiah. He's on this course that is leading directly to the cross. And yet today, the passage that we look to is not directly focused on Jesus, but rather on someone who would consider himself his most loyal follower. As we look to the story of Peter denying Jesus in the courtyard. Peter, who has declared to Jesus over and over his love and devotion for him. Peter, who moments ago in our story has just cut the ear off of one of the servants in defense of Christ. Peter, who would go on to become one of the most important leaders in the history of the church. And yet today, what we see from Peter is the same thing that I saw in myself that night with my wife. His spirit willing, but his flesh weak. And here he is left dealing with the consequences. And so today I want to show you and point out to you three movements in Peter's story. We're going to see his drift, his denial, and then his despair. Let's start with Peter's drift. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me to Mark chapter 14, uh, and we're going to start in verse 66. It says this, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, by the way, the courtyard, they're at the house of the high priest. It was this really big house. It would have kind of like a gated area. And so Jesus is in one of the upper rooms, and Peter is below in the grounds, inside the gates where all the workers would be. Okay, so he's below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Um, when I was in college, I, I spent a summer uh, living in Atlanta, Georgia, and, and I was working with a youth missions organization where each week different youth groups would come to uh, the city, and they would do different projects all around the area. And so part of my job was coordinating all of those details and all of those projects, and we would take students to all these different work sites, and each week we would have up to 100 students. So there's a lot of things to figure out, and, and typically what we would do is we would take these big caravans of like six church vans and a bus, and it's kind of all, all of us going in a, a line together. And if you've ever driven in Atlanta, um, it makes people in Chicago seem like they know what they're doing, which is saying something. Um, and so we'd drive around the city, just this line of cars, and this was around the time we were figuring out if we trusted GPSs in our phone. We still weren't sure. Um, and so what I would do is I would gather all of the drivers beforehand, and I would tell them, whatever happens, just stay as close as possible to the car in front of you. Like, right on their bumper, even if you're going to run a red light, even if you're going to disrupt traffic, we just have to stay close to each other, because I knew the moment we got separated, it was going to be trouble. And my job would become impossible because the farther away we were, the, the more distance there was, the harder it was going to be to get where we needed to go. Stay as close as possible. This, by the way, would have been the same advice I would have given to Peter and the disciples that night when Jesus took them to pray. 
Now, if you know the story, if you're familiar with it, maybe you've heard it before, it's easy for us to consider this and look at Peter and look at the disciples, maybe with a little bit of judgment, to say, how could you do this? How could you deny and betray and leave the one who had been there for you? But try with me for just a moment to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Imagine for just a moment all that had happened in just the span of a few hours. Remember what had happened. Remember the things that we've been looking at for these past several weeks. That They just shared the Passover meal. This meal where they're supposed to remember the exodus and what God has done. And instead, Jesus is talking about how he's going to sacrifice himself. And then he tells them that they're all going to betray him. They all will fall away. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Peter speaks up in verse 29, and he he basically says, Jesus, I would never do that. Maybe these guys would, but I would never betray you. Jesus, I would die with you before that happened. And we see here Jesus saying these words that play out in our story today. At first, though, it seems like Peter is going to hold true to his promise, hold true to his word. We see this in verse 47, that when the crowds come to arrest Jesus, he is ready to go. We're told that he cuts the ear off of one of the men, seemingly ready to go to war on on behalf of his teacher. But then we're told that something else happens, something that I think breaks the spirit, not just of Peter, but of all who followed Jesus. We're told that as they came to arrest Jesus, as they closed in, this had happened many times before, and Jesus had always slipped away. He had always outsmarted them, always used his power that he had available to him. And yet we're told this time that Jesus does nothing. He simply says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they take him away to be killed. We see this in one of the saddest verses in all of scripture in verse 50. We're told that everyone left him and fled. And so within hours, Peter has gone from, Jesus, I will die with you, to, I don't know what you're talking about. How do we get here? How does Peter get here? Was it simply isolation from his friends? Or confusion from what was going on? Or maybe even disillusionment, thinking he knew who Jesus was, but maybe he was wrong? Was it fear, legitimate fear, that what was happening to Jesus would happen to him as well? I think all these things probably contributed in some way or another, but, but look with me to verse 53 and 54. We see something that I think informs what's going on in his head. Verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and look at this. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. You catch that? Peter has just done something that he has never done before. He's never followed Jesus from a distance. He's done a lot of things in his time of following Jesus, not all of them good. But never before has this longing to follow Jesus been met with a desire to keep himself safe. He distances himself. And this is where Peter's drift begins. I had a basketball coach who, who once told our team uh, after we lost the game that, that we lost that game before we even woke up that day. I think what he meant by that is that we lost that game not because of how we played in the game, but because of how we practiced leading up to it. 
and our lack of focus and our lack of discipline and practice led to our failure in the game. We saw the reverse of this last week, how, how Jesus in his prayer in the garden, the victory of the cross was determined not in front of crowds, but in this quiet moment with his heavenly father when he surrendered his will. In the same way, Peter's failure, I think our failures as well, are oftentimes determined not in the moment, but in the habits we build, the lives that we live when no one else is looking. The truth is that Jesus was not the only person on trial that night. It's fascinating how Mark structures this passage. If you have some time, look at it more. But, but he, he structures this where he's alternating between what's going on with Peter and what's going on with Jesus. He's, he's tying these two men together, not just in the timeline of the night, but also in what is happening to both of them. And so there's this contrast that we see between Jesus, who surrendered his life to the Father in the garden, accused of something that was not true, remaining strong. Then we see Peter, who fell asleep in the garden, accused of something that was true, giving in to fear. This is what happens here. That Peter, in his fear or his isolation or his confusion, separates himself from Jesus. First physically, in the garden, then verbally in the courtyard, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And then physically, once more, in verse 68, retreating to the gateway. All of this before the first roosters crow. This, I think, is the nature of temptation. The nature of temptation, that oftentimes the mistakes that we make or the times that we mess up are are the result of a period of drifting. Drifting physically away from our community of faith, away from the church, the people who keep us accountable, who encourage us in our walk. Drifting verbally away from prayer and time in his word to surrender ourselves not to our will, but to his will. Drifting towards safety, wanting, like Peter, to follow Jesus, but afraid at what it might cost. I remember talking to someone about the uh, Chapel Street bumper stickers that some people have. Maybe you have that or, or seen one of them. And, and this person told me that they didn't want a bumper sticker because the way that they, dr- they drive would drive people away from our church. <laughs> Apparently, he didn't want to cut people off in the name of Jesus. I don't know why. Um, and it, it made me laugh, but, but it also made me think. It made me think how many of us are afraid to associate with Jesus because we don't want to tarnish his reputation. For others, I think the opposite is true. And maybe you hesitate to say you're a Christian or you go to church or you're one of those Jesus followers because you don't want to be treated differently. You don't want to be judged more harshly. You don't want to be made fun of or even in some cases mistreated. Friends, what Peter shows us here is that just like in the highways of Atlanta, following Jesus at a distance will always lead to us making a wrong turn. We have two choices. Follow Jesus with all that is within us or drift away. That brings us to the second movement of our story. I want to show you Peter's denial. Peter's denial. Uh, Many of us, I'm sure, have been following and praying about what's going on in the country of Ukraine and just the hurt and the pain and the devastation that we've seen there. Uh, When I was in high school, my, my church I went on a mission trip to Ukraine. We went there to teach an English camp for Ukrainian students, and, and it's just been heartbreaking. 
to, to read about and hear and see stories from friends that we made on that trip about what's going on in that country. I uh, remember while we were there, though, uh, walking around the city that we were staying in, and, and people would come up to us, and they would simply just say, Americans, and then they'd walk away. They didn't want to talk or, or ask questions. They were just saying what was obvious, Americans, and then they just kept moving. And I remember asking the, one of the missionaries that we were working with you know, how they knew, how they knew we were from America, and he told us that it was the clothes that we were wearing, the fact that we were wearing baseball hats, um, our volume that we were talking with, even the, the distance that we kept between us as a group. It was obvious to them, not just that we weren't from Ukraine, but that we were from the States. And it was fascinating. And yet, it's also what we see here happening to Peter. Look with me to the next part of our story. It says, The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So here we see the results of Peter's drift. That he finds himself in a situation that's getting more and more dangerous. Where all of a sudden there's not just one servant, not just one girl accusing him, but a whole crowd. A crowd, we can assume, we can guess, is at least made up partially of the same people that arrested Jesus. So we see that two more times people in this crowd come to Peter saying, certainly you are one of them. It's not a question we can tell. By the words that you speak, the, the things that you do, the way that you're even dressed, we can tell that you're one of those Jesus people. It's as clear for them as it would be for us if someone came to North Aurora and they were wearing a cowboy hat and said, y'all, we would know that they were from the South. It's as clear as it was for those Ukrainian people that saw us, and it was just Americans. It was undeniable that, Jesus, that Peter was one of those Jesus followers. Here's a question um, that I've been wrestling with all week that I'm now going to pass on to you. How long does it take for the people that you meet to know that you're one of those Jesus people? What makes it undeniable? Not even a question. When we go about our lives, when we go to work and see our friends and go to school and when we go to brunch today after service, what makes it clear for those people to see us and connect us to Jesus? Remember in middle school, my, my youth pastor teaching us about evangelism, and, and he encouraged us to consider a friend that we knew that we could invite to our next big youth event. And so I decided to uh, start working up the courage to invite my friend Tim to church. We were good friends. Um, I don't know, maybe you've had a friend that, you, you know, you're, you're, he's great, but he's also kind of a mess, and he needs Jesus. Uh, that was Tim for me. And so I'm mustering up the courage to do this, and I keep putting it off, and, and one day after another goes by, until one day my friend Tim comes to me, and he invites me to church. And apparently his youth pastor had been saying the same thing, and he thought that I was kind of a mess that needed Jesus. <laughs> Now, we were really good friends. We hung out a lot. <laughs> and yet you would have never known from the things that we said to each other and to others, the ways that we acted and the things that we did, that we were both following Jesus. By the way, he came to our church, so I won. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. What about you, though? Would it surprise people when you go to work tomorrow if you told them, your coworkers, 
that you go to church on Sundays? Would it surprise people based on the things that you do or the words that you use or the way that you treat others that you are one of those Jesus people? We're told that again and again, people keep coming up to Peter and and just stating what is clear. And it would be easy for us, I think, to, to read this and miss the tension that's going on in this story. Again, try to imagine this. Peter first being accused by one servant, him saying in verse 68, I don't know nor understand what you mean. Now here, Peter's using uh, kind of legal language. It was a legal defense that he was using, kind of like if I said that you are committing perjury. And then picture this, he moves towards a different part of the ground, and more time goes on, and, and word is starting to spread. More and more people are getting suspicious of this man who's clearly not from around here. And again, Peter denies this claim. And here we have to, again, remember that there's something within Peter that makes him stay where he's at. He could have left, and yet he doesn't want to leave Jesus. More time goes on. A third accusation comes, and this time he does something drastic. Look at verse 71. We're told that Peter invokes a curse on himself. Now, some people have said that he's using a cuss word. That's not what it's talking about. No, instead what he's doing is that he's literally telling these people, may God strike me down if I am lying to you today. So there's this incredible sense of tension, and yet also there's this irony that while all of this is happening, Jesus is on trial for his life, being accused of blasphemy, being sentenced to death. And here in this moment, Peter has failed his own trial. So why does this matter? Why does this conversation This moment that happened almost 2,000 years ago matter. Now, certainly there might be times in your life and in mine where someone comes to us and asks us if we're a Jesus follower, and, and certainly there could be a time where there might be a cost associated with that. In fact, we know for people all around the globe, that is their everyday reality. A reminder for us the needs that our fellow Christ followers have. A reminder of our need to be ready. But more than that, what we see here from Peter is a pattern that I think many of us could be tempted to fall into today. What we see here is this, that the fear of others rather than God will always lead to denial of God rather than self. Fear of others rather than God will always lead to denial of God rather than Jesus talks about this back in Mark chapter 8. To to follow him is to deny yourself, to pick up your cross. And yet this is the nature of fear that what we see in Peter's life and, and maybe what we see in our own sometimes. That it is really hard to carry both your cross and your fear. Fear has a habit of shifting our focus away from God and towards our own interests, our own protection, our own safety. I've shared this before, but I think if Jesus walked through the doors of our church or spent some time in the church, or at least the American church, I think this might be one of the things he says the most. Why are you so afraid? It's all over scripture. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why are you so afraid? Why are you living in fear? Why have you allowed your fear of what other people think about you? Your fear that you don't measure up, your fear of the future for your life or your family's life, rule so much about what you do. 
Friends, too often we get this backwards. We're like Peter, we fear others and we deny God. And he has called us to the exact opposite thing. Fear God, deny yourself, and trust him with the rest. Last piece of the story, let me read this last verse for you as we look at Peter's despair. You see Peter's despair, verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter breaks down and he weeps, literally uh, that he threw himself down, just overcome with emotion, reminded of what Jesus had told him just hours before. Isn't this such a human moment? Haven't we all been here, overcome by what we've done, wishing we could turn back time? And do it differently. Now, the first time you read this story, it seems like this is how the, P- the story of Peter is going to end. This is how Mark leaves him as he moves on talking about Jesus being put on the cross. We see Peter weeping on the ground in the courtyard, unable to fulfill the promise that he had made to the one that he loved so much. And yet this is the grace of God. That just as Jesus' story does not end on the cross, Neither does Peter's story end in the courtyard. In fact, we're told that after the resurrection of Jesus, at least two times he appears to Peter. And if today you find yourself living with guilt or with shame or with regret because of something you've done, then this last part of the story is for you. We're told this in John chapter 21, that, that Peter had returned to the only other thing he knew. He was fishing, fishing with some of the other disciples until Jesus shows up. They share a meal together, and then what happens next is often referred to as the public restoration of Peter. The public restoration of Peter. Three times he asks him this question, do you love me? Three times he says that. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times he fell asleep in the garden. And here, three times, Peter is reminded of what we need to remember as well. That we are not defined by our drifting, and we are not defined by our denial. We are not defined by the shame that we feel or the mistakes that we've made. If you are in Christ, this is the question that Jesus asks you. Not, will you stop messing up already? Not, will you feel guilty because somehow that feels right like you should? Not even, will you apologize for what you have done? Before then, what does he ask? Do you love me? If today you are following the king, this is what matters most. You are not defined by your shortcomings, but by love. The love that you have for him, but more importantly, the love that he has for you. See, it was love that restored Peter that day. It was love that empowered him, strengthened him allowed him to become one of the most important leaders in the biggest global movement in history, bringing countless people to faith. It was love that gave him the courage to do in his old age what he was afraid to do in his youth, to not just fight for Christ, but to lay down his life for him too. Being one of the many disciples that were martyred, love restored Peter that day. And this is the hope of the gospel. Maybe today you've had your own courtyard experience of drifting, 
or denying. Maybe today you feel the weight of past mistakes. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone for God to forgive. Maybe today you need to be restored. Restored not by your own righteousness, but by his. You are not defined by what you have done. Not by the shame that you feel. Not by the hurt that you've caused. You are defined by, marked by, and made new by love. So today let's follow him and the freedom that that love offers. We do this now as we come to the table for communion. We're reminded of that love. Go ahead and take those elements out now if you have them. And as we think about what they represent. We think about the love that was offered to us. We think about the love that sacrifices. Think about love that gives second chances. Love that restores. We think about love that makes a way for us to come back to the Father. So go ahead and take that with me. If you need an element, you can put your hand up and we'll get that to you. But go ahead and take that top layer off now as we think about what happened just hours before the story we just looked at. Think about the night that Jesus was betrayed, being with his disciples and telling them that this is my body and it is broken for you. Not just for them, not just in theory, not just intellectually, for you today. And so let's eat and remember him now. You can take that other layer off now. We're told later on in that evening, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. The promise that he has made to us. A way back to the Father. Let's drink and remember him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you now grateful for your love. Lord, we're grateful for the restoration that we see in Peter's story, that it did not end in the courtyard. Lord, that your grace and your mercy were enough. Father, I ask now that you would remind us of that. Lord, that you would be with those, especially now, who feel shame or regret or or that they're unforgivable. Lord, remind them of the truth that we see. Give us the courage to live for you unapologetically, loving you and loving our neighbors. We ask this in your name. Amen.